You're listening to the ERLC podcast. I had to hit the dial in the middle of the mic, like the dial. It was muted. Here, Brent, I had to literally hit the dial to unmute myself. Yeah, that's what I did. I know. Hit it again. But do you know? I'm waiting for Gary to let me back in. Now, how how is this? Oh, oh, there it is. Oh, Brent. Wow. As 2020 comes to a close, we're thankful for the role we've been able to play in your lives. We're thankful that we get to assist churches by helping them apply the gospel to moral and ethical questions of the Christian life and by speaking from our churches as a witness to the public square. This podcast is one of the many ways we do this. If you've benefited from the content shared on this podcast, would you please consider making a year-end donation? We're supported by the Cooperative Program of the Southern Baptist Convention, but any individual donations we receive apart from that goes to placing ultrasound machines in pro-life pregnancy centers and advocating for religious liberty and human dignity here at home and across the globe. Please consider making a year-end donation at erlc.com backslash donate. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and the things Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. This is the hello that almost didn't happen because I thought maybe I was going to um, have a baby last night, but I didn't. Here I am. Man, baby watch. Instead, it's podcast baby time. That's right. Well, we're glad you're here with us, and also with us is our uh, colleague, Brent Leatherwood. Ho 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 from Tennessee. Well, because I doing I'm doing that because this is the this is the last actual episode before Christmas, before our special episode, of course. Yeah, we haven't revealed what's coming, uh, but yeah, it's a, they don't it's a know big about deal. That. So so get excited, yeah, people. Cracking. And uh <laughs> it is uh <laughs> it's a thing to be excited about, and we are gonna share a little bit more about that with you later in the show. Also in the show today, we're going to talk to our friend, Mary Wiley. Mary is an author. She works uh, at Lifeway, which is just down the road from our offices here in downtown Nashville. And we are really excited to uh, talk with her today about her new book, which is actually an eight-week study called Everyday Theology. But Lindsay, so that we can get into it, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Yes, let's get going on these articles because listeners do not know it's taken us forever to get started. Uh, So we have a very important article first up with the news that the vaccine has made it to the U.S. and nurses, healthcare personnel have started to get the vaccine. Christians are having very real concerns about it. And so uh, our staff has written an explainer uh, titled COVID-19 and the Concern About Abortive Fetal Cells in Medicine. So what this does is just breaks down how this vaccine was developed, what goes into it, and what are those abortive fetal cells that people are worried about. This goes all the way back to the 70s and 80s. And we explain what that is, and we try to help uh, form the Christian conscience so that you can be able to think clearly and biblically about uh, making a choice as to whether or not you want to receive this vaccine. Yeah, Lindsay, I'm really glad that we put this resource together because uh, it is something that we have received an enormous amount of feedback and questions uh, here at the URLC, and then all of us personally have had so many conversations with friends and family members who have, you know, honest and sincere questions about whether whether or not they should take the vaccine, what does it mean in terms of the, of the ethics, and also just is it, is it safe and is it going to be effective? And so th- this article, and actually there's a host of articles we've put together, uh, even linked in this one, that, that answers or attempts to answer many of those questions. And like you said, it provides information so that you can make decisions uh, in line with your own conscience. Uh, one of my friends is a, she's a pharmacist at the VA. She uh, posted a picture of herself getting the vaccine yesterday and uh, just trying to help assuage some of the fears that people have surrounding the vaccine to, to see someone who they know and trust, uh, who is also a Christian, being able to uh, just just model like, hey, I, I've taken in this data. I understand the risks. I understand uh, what is this vaccine consists of. And she was trying to, you know, put herself out there as someone who is saying, hey, based on everything that we know uh, and the situation that we find ourselves in, uh, I am making this decision. And I'm I'm encouraging you to follow my example. I thought that was really cool. 
And I appreciated the fact that we put a helpful analogy in there about uh, if there was a, a murder victim who was also an organ donor. I think that that kind of example uh, helps people think through this. And so, yeah, and then we bottom line it uh, as uh, the piece ends. And it says, Christians are not morally culpable if they use treatments and vaccines that were developed using these cells, which I, I think people need to have that kind of crystal clear understanding as we are thinking through these vaccines that ultimately are, are going to save lives. I think that's really good, Brent, to put the bottom line up front there for people like that, that we do think that this is an ethically acceptable uh, vaccine for Christians to take. And at the same time, we are very careful in the article to walk you through uh, both the history uh, and the the facts surrounding the uh, surrounding fetal tissue research and these this particular fetal cell line that has been used. And the, you know, the analogy that you gave there, Brent, about uh, the murder victim is certainly one that that we work through in that article. And our whole goal is to show you in this, that while we oppose uh, the harvesting of fetal cells from elective abortions, and we don't think that that should be used for medical research, uh, in in this case where we're talking about, especially the vaccines that are out there right now, that those cell lines are not even involved in the production. They were involved in the testing phase, but they're not even involved uh, in the production phase of these vaccines. Uh, we, we tried to be very careful in, in setting all that forth. And so this is an incredibly important article for, for Lindsay to highlight. And if you have questions about the vaccine, this is one of many resources that we have available for you. And as Josh pointed out, there are other links within that article. And we just want to point out, too, that we think it is important that uh, we as Christians think critically about these things and don't just blindly accept them. So that's why we want to provide these types of resources, and we welcome these questions. So if you find yourself with more questions, feel free to email us at info at ERLC.com and stay tuned to the end of the episode and I'll give you Josh's personal cell phone number. <laughs> Just kidding. So moving on to another appropriate article in the midst of uh, what a hard season 2020 has been, Jordan Wooten, who was an intern with us, has an article titled, How Lament Can Lead to Hope in a Time of Plague, Grieving Our Losses Amid the Pandemic. He says this, life as a creature in a fallen cosmos is hard. We're vulnerable in more ways than we're willing to admit, susceptible to the smallest of inconveniences and largest of calamities. Lamentation, therefore, should be a central part of the church's shared vocabulary. And of course, lamentation is where we cry out to the Lord. But it doesn't just stop there in... Um, it's, it's not a sense of despair. It's a sense of crying out to the Lord in hope because we know that ultimately He's going to deliver those who are His. So I thought this was appropriate during the Advent season as we're focused on the waiting. The picture came to mind when uh, I was watching some of the news coverage of the vaccines arriving and people uh, getting the vaccine. And it just, you know, it just sparked the, those words, a thrill of hope. And it reminded me of how Jesus came to us kind of like this, like God with us came to us in the midst of darkness and a dark time, and, a, and He um, became the suffering Savior in order to deliver us. So this is an appropriate article that I pray will lift your face toward the Lord and cause your heart to cry out to Him, even as you trust Him in the midst of such trying times. And then finally, we have an article by our very own Jason Thacker. And this is an explainer on something that you may or may not have heard of. I hadn't heard too much about it until um, my coworkers were talking about it. But it's about Parler and why Parler matters. And Josh and Brett might be able to talk about this more. But it's a new social media platform that has gained growing popularity, especially after the November election. And uh, it, it has a user base that is... Uh, largely very similar as far as their political convictions, but they claim to not do some of the censoring that Twitter and Facebook are doing. And so Jason explores what this is and, again, um, why it matters in our civil discourse. And I would say that users who, uh, A, this is a helpful explainer, B, users who want to venture over into uh, this social media app uh, named Parler, just be cautious because uh, there is a lack of uh, censorship on that platform. There's been multiple news outlets over the last few weeks that have talked about uh, the fact that pornography and some really just far out there 
kind of uh, conspiracy theories or whatnot are, are being shared uh, and are ubiquitous uh, across the platform. My own parents uh, have uh, kind of ventured into this and uh, have been uh, concerned by uh, some of the things that they've seen. And so we probably just need to use that that warning with the, with with this app. Absolutely. We are by no means uh, promoting it. We want to explain again what it is and um, what kind of effect it might have on on you and that and those you're interacting with. So as I say every week, this is just a rundown. There are tons more articles on our site. Next week there will be even through the holidays. Uh, we try to thin it out a little bit because uh, we know we don't want you scrolling. We want you spending time with your family and friends. But we will continue to provide you content throughout the holidays. But for now, Josh and Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And before we get to the culture section for the week, so Brent coming right up, uh, I just wanted to say to you guys, so we are coming up on the Christmas holidays. And Lindsay actually this week asked me to write a reflection. It's funny because in my piece, I said that I decided to do a thought experiment. And she she texted me and said, more like Lindsay asked you to do a thought experiment uh, with what what are some good things that I would highlight from the year? And the number two thing on my list in my seven great things from my really hard year uh, was the ERLC podcast. You know, we've been at this, uh, we started last January and we started scheming about it more than a year ago. And so for us to be on this ride together uh, with the three of us, and then also with uh, Gary and Megan, who are with us every week, and Marie Delph, who helps us get the show uh, out to people every week, we are man, we're having a lot of fun. And so we want to say thank you to our listeners, but I want to say thank you to you guys for being being a part of this uh, part of this fun journey. Uh, it's, you know, it's exciting. It's been exciting so far and a lot of fun and looking forward to seeing what's next. But Brent, uh, to take it to the culture section, this is one of the highlights of my week. So tell us what's going on. Man, Josh, that means a lot. I'm, I am one of the highlights of your week. That's That's essentially what you're telling me. That's great. And as well as the updates that we get, Lindsay, on your your pregnancy progress dude no kidding baby watch is a real thing baby watch is a and real the different thing. snacks i am partaking of during our recording <laughs> that's right i think that should be a segment on the show every week what's what's Lindsay eating <laughs> no gary gary says no please no <laughs> all right so to begin our look at culture so is this the beginning of the end NBC News has a report on the first individuals to receive the new COVID vaccine, the the first one to hit the market. Uh, With a quick jab to a nurse's left deltoid, America entered a new phase in its fight against the coronavirus on Monday of this week. The injection to Sandra Lindsay's arm at a New York hospital made her the first American to receive the coronavirus vaccine outside of a clinical trial. The small dose of the mRNA represented a giant leap in efforts to beat back the virus, a moonshot worth of hope amid a pandemic that has infected more than 16 million and killed more than 300,000 nationwide. Y'all, I I am here for the end of of this pandemic. This is certainly a a moment that we all have pointed to that, man, if we could ever get there, gosh, it seems like that that would be the light at the end of the tunnel when when people can start getting vaccinated from this this horrible virus. And once again, it just makes me thankful that we've had uh, national leaders committed to getting us to this point, I think through the conversation that Dr. Moore had with Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the National Institutes of Health, uh, who have helped to spearhead this effort, uh, I'm just, we're here and we've got a, a few more grueling months ahead of us, but hopefully this is the, as I said, the beginning of the end. Well, what's incredible is that we live in a time when we can um, develop a vaccine so quickly, a safe vaccine so quickly. And the other thing that we've discussed on our site and the um, the articles and the resources that explain the vaccine is that this is a really, it's a neat vaccine because the mRNA doesn't actually infect you with a live infection, which is very cool and amazing. So, um, so it's safe in that way. So this is a, as one of my friends said, she said, she told her husband who's in the healthcare industry and about to get his vaccine, she said, I told him, I feel like... I feel like Aslan is on the move. <laughs> she said she got teary-eyed. So it is 
It is just a great dose of hope. What is a moonshot is my question here. A moonshot worth of hope. Never heard that phrase. I think it comes from the expression shooting the moon. So talking about like when you have what some people call a BHAG, you know, a big, hairy, audacious goal, some something that is very far-fetched or far out there. We don't think we can make it. Uh, this is, you know, some people call it a wig, a, wild, a wildly important goal. A moonshot is like this, we, we put this thing out there that we don't even know if it's possible. And like, look at this vaccine. It is nothing short of miraculous. Uh, I remember, you know, there's been a lot of talk this week uh, about the news organizations that basically mocked uh, President Trump when he talked about the idea of having a vaccine by the election or before the end of the year. And, you know, because at the time that seemed crazy, it had never happened uh, in such a short time span. And, and this is, this is something that, faster than anyone thought possible, is going to be part of what, God willing, delivers us from the end of this plague. Just a little piece of trivia here. Speaking of a moonshot, when I was a junior in high school, we had this pageant called Miss Fletcher. And in one of my speeches that I gave, I said that cliche, shoot for the moon, because if you miss, you'll land among the stars. And look, I have landed among the stars, Josh and Brent Megan and Gary, what more could I get out of life? Wow, <clears throat> that's right. Well, actually, so you 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 asking that question uh, made me try and do a, a quick intra podcast fact check to find out because I I assumed moonshot was actually associated with President Kennedy's call for us to send a man to the moon, but in fact, the first known use of moonshot took place in 1949. Huh. So that was years before President Kennedy make that made that call. But essentially, I mean, Josh just said it right. It's taking an idea that just doesn't have precedent, seems nearly impossible, and makes it come to reality. And y'all, that's exactly what happened with these vaccines. And hey, you mentioned uh, some of our American leaders like President Trump. Well, there's some news this week that there's going to be some vaccines coming very shortly for our American leadership. So Politico is reporting that President-elect Joe Biden, as well as current Vice President Mike Pence, intend to get the COVID-19 vaccine in the very near future. Biden plans to get the vaccine in public as early as next week, a transition official confirmed, while Pence will get his vaccine publicly at the White House this Friday, today, as you're listening to this podcast to, quote, promote the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and build confidence among the American people, his office announced. He will be joined by second lady, his wife, Karen Pence, and Surgeon General Jerome Adams. Y'all, this is must-see TV. It is actually really important to see these elected officials who are involved in the development of the vaccine take it and to do so on television or in, in, in front of cameras is actually going to bring a lot of confidence to people. I don't know how many like people in my life who are very conservative have said, oh, I'm not going to take it unless so-and-so takes it, you know? And so seeing the vice president take it is going to be a, a very big deal. Seeing the president-elect take it is going to be a very big deal because it's going to instill a lot of confidence in people who just aren't certain Uh about how to feel about this vaccine. Well, there is a new tool, apparently, to fight COVID, and it is mouthwash. This is right up Josh's alley. Aren't you <laughs> obsessed with mouthwash, Josh? I'm obsessed with mouthwash. In fact, I bought this huge thing of mouthwash the other day, and it I, honestly, it's the first mouthwash I've ever used that doesn't like tingle or like you honestly can't tell it's in your, you know what I mean? It, it's almost like having water in your mouth as opposed to like something that's an astringent or something. And, uh, it's it's underwhelming, so I'm gonna yeah, have to like it, waste waste yeah, this isn't big part bottle. Of the yeah, isn't that yeah, the whole the point? Like you want to feel the burn tingling. to know that it's working. Uh, that right. is my point right here. Is that this is, but it's it's unfortunate because I bought like the biggest bottle they had, so you know have to have to experiment before I go in on the the big purchase like that. Yeah, yeah, don't don't do that. That's that's just good life advice, Josh Wester. So Wall Street Journal is reporting this. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and don't forget to gargle with mouthwash. That's the message that Unilever and Colgate-Palmolive are carefully starting to push after research they commissioned showed that certain types of mouthwash and toothpaste could potentially help deactivate the virus that causes COVID-19. How does that happen? Well, 
The study says because COVID-19 can be spread through droplets generated when an infected person coughs, sneezes, or speaks, both companies said the mouthwashes dissolve the outer protective layer of virus particles, preventing them from attaching to cells and infecting them. It'd be great if some independent research confirms this, but I mean, I got to tell you, we're all in on this in the the Leatherwood household. Hey, I think I'm just going to stick with Lysol. Yes, but you cannot do Lysol in your mouth, nor can you drink bleach uh, to get rid of of COVID-19. So, And whether or not you think that needs to be said, it does. So thanks for that PSA there, Brent Leatherwood. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe the French president, Emmanuel Macron. That was my best French. I, I don't know. Oh. I don't even know if that is French. But listen, so, uh, but this is serious. So uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, he tested positive for COVID-19. The BBC News is reporting a host of European leaders are self-isolating after the French president tested positive for COVID-19. He will be self-isolating for seven days while working remotely. Uh, The French president attended a number of high-profile events in recent days, including an EU summit. Following his diagnosis, several other European leaders, including the Spanish prime minister, said that they would self-isolate. His wife, uh, Brigitte uh, Macron, who is 67, is also self-isolating, but thankfully has no symptoms. And they don't know where he got this. But obviously, if he's been attending multiple events, there's a good chance that's where he got it. So prayers uh, to the French president, and uh, hopefully nobody else will, will get sick because of this. All right. Staying on the international front, y'all may not have realized this, but Brexit is back. Specifically, it's back in the headlines because this time it's it's for real. They are up against the hard finish for Brexit. NPR is reporting four and a half years after the landmark Brexit referendum, the United Kingdom is still arguing with the European Union about their future relationship. Britain officially left the EU in January and has spent the last 11 months in a transitional phase while the two sides try to negotiate a new free trade agreement to avert major disruptions at borders and more economic damage. That transition period, though, ends officially at midnight Brussels time on December 31st. Why am I bringing this up? Because, uh, obviously, uh, the UK is one of America's leading partners. Uh, We have a, quote, special relationship, if you recall. But also, there's a number of uh, trade uh, aspects to this, uh, economic aspects to this. And if you recall, uh, the ERLC, we're trying to do our first ever international pro-life event in Northern Ireland, which is a part of the United Kingdom. And that area in particular has been a major point of contention in these Brexit negotiations. So we are hoping uh, that they get this all resolved so that uh, next year, once this pandemic closes, uh, we can we can actually move forward with our with our pro-life event. I think the biggest shock in all of this for most of our listeners is going to be we're still talking about Brexit. You know, like uh, it, it was kind of a I mean, not kind of it was an incredibly uh, huge thing to see them separate from the EU and for years have been uh, negotiating all of these deals to try to uh, establish a new system. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see if they make this deadline. Uh, my my low confidence in government and bureaucracy tells me that it that it could come down to the wire and they might not make it. But we will uh, we'll certainly see what happens. And honestly, for everyone's sake, I, I hope that they come to the most equitable agreement possible. Well, turning our attention here domestically, The Electoral College came together, met, and voted. The Associated Press reports the Electoral College decisively confirmed Joe Biden on Monday as the nation's next president, ratifying his November victory in an authoritative state-by-state repudiation of President Donald Trump's refusal to concede that he had lost. The presidential electors gave Biden a solid majority of 306 electoral votes to Trump's 232, which is the exact same margin uh, that occurred four years ago. As a matter of fact, it's actually two larger because there were two electors who decided not to vote uh, for President Trump in in 2016, uh, which, if you recall, uh, President Trump said that that was a landslide. So there you go. Uh, but this was, uh, you know, usually this is a very um, 
formulaic meeting, honestly kind of boring. Well, there was heightened security in place in some states as electors met to cast their paper ballots with masks, social distancing, and other pandemic precautions taking place. So uh, we, we have passed another important constitutional marker on the way to, um, well, the next line will be Congress just certifying that they have received these Electoral College results. And then on January 20th, uh, Joe Biden uh, taking office and being inaugurated as the next president. So, Brent, this is something that happens every presidential election, correct? Yes. And then is it usually around this time? It or is. is it a different time frame based on controversies or whatever? No, huh? It it, it usually happens in mid-December. And so, yep, this is uh, exactly right on time. All right, Brent, got to put you on the spot. So uh, one of the things people are going to want to know about is uh, they heard last week leading up to the Electoral College voting about the possibility of alternate electors. Uh, what, what, if anything, do you know about that? What, what is there anything there? There, there is, there's nothing there, uh, but there was uh, some, some talk that sort of an oppositional slate of electors would be nominated and cast their ballots and some states went so far as to create fake-looking uh, certification documents and sending them to the National Archives, <laughs> which is which is where uh, some of this paperwork goes. And so apparently one state ended up sending a forged slate uh, of electors to the National Archives, I, I guess with the intention that the, the archives would accept them as part of the the national record that that did not happen, as far as I know, the personnel at the National Archives simply moved them to the trash. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, no, th- this is something that is. Um, it was talked about in in some spaces on the internet, but it's ultimately not going to actually go anywhere. And uh, one more question for our lightning round with Leatherwood before you get back to you your rundown here. Um, What happened to the Texas lawsuit? Uh, I was just scanning through your notes and it looks like we're not going to bring that up. But last week on the podcast, we talked about uh, the state of Texas trying to get the Supreme Court to uh, stop the uh, votes from being counted uh, from four different states. And we were speculating that this was going to reach the Supreme Court. What was the outcome there? Yes, that's a helpful reminder. And honestly, I, I couldn't remember when that was because that feels like maybe that was uh, several years ago at this point. Uh, no, so the the Supreme Court unanimously rejected this. Now, there was, a, uh, there was a couple of justices that arrived in a slightly different fashion to the decision. So the, the actual holding was a seven to two decision. When you look at the two justices that decided to not uh, agree with their colleagues, they simply said, oh, we would accept this, but then we would summarily reject it on its face, uh, so, which is why I said it was, is, it was unanimous uh, that all nine justices ruled that they would not uh, accept uh, what Texas and some of the other states that were supporting Texas's uh, move. And so what they were trying to do was basically say that their, uh, their rights for this election were being infringed upon by uh, the ways that these four other states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, had conducted their elections. And honestly, the Constitution allows each individual state to run the election in the way that they see fit. And so the justices were saying, we can't do anything here. Uh, and so it's not for us to determine uh, how those states uh, did or did not run their elections and whether that's fair to the citizens in another state. And so, uh, yeah, so it was rejected and uh, ending with it, honestly, the, the last seemingly legitimate uh, opportunity um, that the Trump campaign had to, uh, to counter the, the results of the election in November. So moving on, Lindsay, I have a question for you. Would you be sad if you threw a party and people didn't show up? Actually, you just hit on one of my greatest fears, Brent. Which is I was, why about, I don't to, throw I was about to say that <laughs> Lindsay would never recover. <laughs> which is why I don't throw parties unless I know people are going to come. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, I don't know if I'll be able to see my own funeral, but if nobody shows up, I'll be really sad. <laughs> wow. That's uh, that's much more than I expected. I, I was going to just 
get, you know, I was going to go uh, with a yes and, and then run with it. But no, you, you, yeah, you, you just hit, you hit a tender spot. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is exactly what the presidential inaugural committee is hoping for. So CNN reports that the pick, again, presidential inaugural committee, on Tuesday, urged Americans to refrain from traveling for President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's inauguration that will take place on January 20th amid the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Biden and Harris will take their oaths of office at the U.S. Capitol during a significantly scaled-down inauguration ceremony that will implement, quote, vigorous health and safety protocols, the committee said in a release. The ceremony's footprint will be extremely limited according to the committee, and the typical parade that follows on Inauguration Day will be, quote, reimagined. Moving over into Baptist life, there was some big news this week as it was announced that March for Life is welcoming some pretty high-profile evangelicals. Baptist Press reports that Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer will join a lineup of speakers, including Tim Tebow, Benjamin Watson, and Jim Daly at the 48th Annual March for Life next January 29th in Washington, D.C. Greer will be the first SBC president to ever speak at the event. That's a that's a great honor, and certainly I'm excited uh, for J.D. personally, but I, I'm excited that obviously a, a prominent Southern Baptist will be headlining the March for Life, which is an annual event that we encourage people to attend, that that we attend uh, as members of the ERLC staff. And uh, we always try and do some some programming related to the March for Life with our annual Evangelicals for Life event. You're right, Brent. Like, we are excited to see J.D., uh, who has now basically been serving as SBC president. This is his third year uh, serving, which is unusual because normally it's a two-year term. But we are excited to see him there. And honestly, if you've never attended the March for Life, it is a really, really cool thing. I don't know that I would tell you to make 2021 your very first one, but to be in the nation's capital, to be standing up for the cause of life and human dignity, to be opposing abortion and standing uh, with thousands and thousands of other people who are committed uh, to these very same causes that are so important and fundamental. Uh, it, it is well worth your time, and we would, you know, we would encourage you to to either attend or watch uh, from this year's March for Life and then to make plans to be there at a future event. All right, and let's conclude this look at culture with the queen of our culture, Dolly Parton, because did y'all know she is actually responsible for saving the life of an individual? That's right. For one Florida family, she was literally a life-saving angel, being in the right place at the right time to save a nine-year-old girl from being hit by a moving vehicle, reports the media site Mediaite. The scary incident happened on the set of Christmas on the Square, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Talia Hill, a nine-year-old singer and dancer from Davenport, Florida, was cast in the film along with her two brothers. Quote, there is a vehicle moving and I was walking and then somebody grabbed me and pulled me back. And I looked up and it was Dolly Parton, Hill explained. Hill described her surprise at being rescued by the film star. And Dolly Parton's response was, well, I am an angel, you know, which she plays both in the movie and actually is in, in real life. Dolly Parton is on point for this year. I don't know that she's ever had a better year to save somebody's life in 2020. Come on. Yeah, I'm just I think she affirm. paid that girl off. <laughs> I just want to affirm the the Queen of Tennessee. Uh this is, you know, just one more excellent thing. But like you said, she's having an excellent year with her uh, contributions this year to vaccine progress, giving a million dollars to that cause. I mean, look. We're all grateful for Dolly. Honestly, 2020 has been uh, much more palatable uh, because of Dolly Parton just helping us all through the pandemic. So, all right, well, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Searching for Christmas by J.D. Greer. Meet the awesome God at the heart of the familiar Christmas story. This book is perfect for giving to unbelieving friends and family this Christmas. Find out more at thegoodbook.com. 
Well, Mary, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. As we're getting started, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing in ministry right now? And while you're at it, would you also just share with us one thing God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry? Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. So, uh, I'm Mary Wiley. I do full-time work with B&H Publishing Group, leading the marketing team. Uh, but most of all, love just getting to serve the church, uh, specifically the local church. And uh, just this season, you guys know with 2020 has just been such an interesting season of life. But um, I think the Lord has really just been teaching me to really pay attention to the rhythms that he is leading in. Um, and, and so that for me has been rest a lot during this season, which I am not, I don't know about you guys. I feel like a lot of you are probably wired similarly to me where I want to be moving forward and doing something and feeling like whatever I'm doing that day really matters. And so uh, rest is not an easy thing for me. And this year, uh, God has really forced that in a lot of ways. Um, so we, we're expecting a child and pregnancy is very difficult for me. And so God's really forced rest in that way because my body just can't continue moving forward without rest. Uh, and just in this season, it seemed that ministry has been more difficult. People are dealing with a lot of heavy feelings, a lot of feelings of isolation, and to serve people well, it really requires that I also am very present with them, uh, but also that I that I rest. And thank you for sharing those lessons, Mary. There is nothing like a pregnancy to slow you down. <laughs> oh, yeah. Make you have to rest. That's I've been thankful to work from home during this pandemic because I can take a nap whenever I want. <laughs> yes, I love <laughs> so, it. Um, so you already mentioned uh, the pandemic. Uh, and in addition to that, what things are you and those around you paying attention to in culture right now? Sure. Something that has really been brought to my attention recently is just paying a lot of attention within the local church, also inside and outside the church, just syncretism and and really watching as we see kind of the interspersion of people's faith with their other key beliefs, whether that be uh, who they're voting for and within politics, or whether that be some sort of philosophy of, of medical care, even. Uh, I think we're seeing in this season, we've had an opportunity to see a lot of idols rise to the surface when people are most uncomfortable. That's when they normally cling to those idols most closely. And I think 2020 has been a year of discomfort. And so I'm certainly paying attention to uh, what we're seeing across the board of that's really revealing what people deeply believe. And now syncretism, the mixing of, of ideas has been something that God has been after his people about from the very beginning. It's not something that is new uh, and it's not something that's going to just go away and disappear out of our lives. And so it's, it's a very real everyday walking with the Lord of like rooting out the idols that are in our hearts and, and helping those that we're discipling, helping those that we're walking alongside do the same. Uh, and so what I'm seeing is just as people are both identifying those uh, and even kind of walking in those, I think we're seeing kind of this dichotomy of the rooting out of idols that leads to repentance and to growth and to faithfulness, and also the bearing down on our idols that leads to uh, pride and arrogance. And so just this kind of uh, headbutting of ideas that I really hope leaves the church in a much stronger situation and in a situation where we say, uh, let's know the God we serve and let's serve him well and let's walk in step with him and surrender every day. And so culturally, I think we're seeing kind of the head of many decades of of disciple of cultural discipleship, uh, of of media discipleship, of uh, different philosophies that are discipling us as well, and so I I hope that that will in turn lead us to better worship the God that we do serve. Now, uh, being expecting, I am also of course following all of the vaccine details when it comes to COVID and how that's going to affect our local churches, going to affect events going forward. Events is a large part of of my everyday work. And so, uh, as we all know, those have kind of ended for 2020 in a lot of ways we have not, I haven't traveled in months, which is a very unusual feeling. And so, uh, all of these kind of things are, are coming to a head and, and are things that I am currently certainly paying attention to. 
Well, if if our audience uh, didn't know it beforehand, just just from the richness of that answer there, you gave us a good little theological lesson, and it just is another one of the reasons, Mary, that I am I'm thankful for your voice, and I'm thankful uh, for the fact that you have a a new book. It's called Everyday Theology, and uh, you know it can serve as an eight week study. Tell us a little bit about it. Tell us a little bit about the study, and you know what drove you to to write this. Sure. So um, about, let's see, I guess it was five years ago now, I received a phone call from a random friend that also worked at Lifeway, and they needed uh, a children's minister to serve in an interim role for a season. At the time, I was serving in children's ministry, had served as a children's minister during college. I was writing curriculum on the curriculum line that this particular church was using. And and so this friend just kind of said, like, we could really use some help this is what you're working on every day. Can you just come and fill a need for a very short season? Uh, As we all know, (laughs) in local church ministry, interim seasons tend to last far longer than you ever imagined them to last. And so uh, that transitioned into a three-year kind of process of leading the children's ministry at Fairview Church out here in Lebanon, where we attend now. And so in that process, I got to interface with a lot of parents who had kids who were asking really hard questions. And so um, in the process of helping them walk through answering those of like, who is God? How can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man? I mean, these big theological questions that their kids were asking that these parents just were not equipped to answer. And Many, many, many of these parents had been in church their entire lives. They they knew the stories. Uh, they could, you know, felt boarded out for you if you wanted them to, but they did not necessarily understand how stories connected or what God was saying about himself and the whole story of Scripture, the whole narrative of Scripture. And so as I served them, I just, I saw a very real need. And as I looked in the market, I couldn't find anything that would meet that need. And so I started, uh, I talked to my pastor and, and started writing what would one day become everyday theology. So my sweet local church was certainly uh, my guinea pigs when it came to writing this. And there was a lot of learning that happened through that. But this was written for my local church, for the women that I knew personally, who I felt like just needed to know who God is, who the God is that they serve, um, who Jesus is what the Holy Spirit's work is and and what He's doing in our everyday lives. And so all of these really just foundational doctrinal truths that they just didn't have a major background in. And and I felt the need to really bring those to the forefront. And so each week walks through kind of a major category of uh, what we would call systematic theology. Uh, And the goal of this study was not to download a bunch of knowledge or to um, help people better argue about what they believe. But the real the real goal of, of rightly done theology is that we would rightly worship God. Uh, and so my goal through this was, and I, I was quick to tell my people, I do want you to walk out of here knowing more and feeling more confident in what you believe and why you believe it and why it matters in your everyday life. But more than that, I want you to walk out of here just on fire, loving the God that you serve, knowing him rightly, and that every doctrine points you to worship. And that's really the goal, the heart of this study is that each concept, as you talk through God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and scripture, the church, redemption, humanity, and then the end times, that each of those would point us to a deeper understanding and a deeper worship of the God we serve. I'm thankful for that heart behind the study because you're right, sound theology should lead to doxology, worshiping the Lord. And you've already addressed that, you know, people were having they were having questions because of the intimidating nature of studying theology, and it can be abstract and hard to apply to our real lives. So walk us through in a little bit more detail how you tried to help people apply or understand the benefits of theology to the way they live their everyday lives. Absolutely. I 
I really believe that we should own what we believe personally and that it should drive every decision that we make. And so a really silly example that I often use is that what I choose to eat for breakfast actually tells you what I believe is true about how God made my body and how he intends for it to be fueled. And so when we kind of peel back the layers of why we're choosing to do things that we do or uh, the motives behind a lot of uh, our decision making, it is often what is deeply rooted in our heart that we most believe is true. In the study, the goal was always at the end of each day, there's a section for uh, participants to kind of write out, okay, I've read what Mary has to say about this doctrine. I've read a ton of scripture on it throughout the narrative of scripture, but now I'm going to put it into my own words so that I can really own what this is and explain this is what I believe. And then I'm also going to explain why. So what are the scriptures that I'm pointing to? Because I didn't, what I didn't want is for people to just take in anything that I said as truth. I want people to learn to read the Bible for themselves and to interpret it and to apply it correctly within the context that it was written. And so the goal was really to help them do that within the realm of the study. And so they would also kind of write out why they believe that particular doctrine. And then the third portion of that daily practice was to then say, and this is how this particular doctrine applies. And so if I believe that the doctrine of the Trinity is true, and I believe that uh, the Holy Spirit lives within me and is a member of the Trinity, then I have to believe that the power of God is within me and that I have access to the Father through the work of the Son and the presence of the Spirit. And so as I pray, that matters. Um, I'm not going to a temple as they did in the Old Testament, to then have a mediator through a priest, I can go directly into the throne room of God and not fear uh, that my my sin will, you know, end my life uh, because I'm I'm in the presence of God, but that I am covered by Christ's blood and uh, and can can commune directly with the Father. And so all of these different concepts really do matter in the way that we practice our faith and in the way that we live our everyday life. So the things we spend our money on, the things we spend our time on are really all a result of whatever we believe is true in our heart of hearts. And if we believe that what God says is true about generosity and serving and loving others, then that's going to reveal itself in the way that we live. Uh, But if we believe that we are the center of the universe, and that is certainly also going to be uh, revealed in the way that we live. And so uh, the goal of the study was to really help people draw the connections to this ancient faith, which some would say is dated and doesn't really apply to today, uh, but to take even Old Testament passages that are telling us about God or about uh, what he's doing in the world and then saying, you know what, this does really matter for me because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, let's talk about this. For our final question. So in addition to creating all these incredible resources uh, through LifeWay, you also are a fellow podcaster. Is that what we're called? I think we're podcasters. Sure. That works. Yeah. So why not? Uh, And your podcast is called Questions Kids Ask. All of us uh, here in the ERLC podcasting world, we are parents. And in our work and in our homes, we field hard questions about life and God and all sorts of things. I imagine your own kids inspire a lot of the episodes for your podcast. (laughs) Well, could you tell us a little (laughs) bit more about the podcast and maybe tell us some of the interesting questions that you've been asked by your own kids or others? Sure. Well, this was a, a very similar answer to that same need that I saw in the local church of just answering the theological questions in a way that a kid can really understand. Um, And so I got to interview, I've been interviewing a lot of people along the way throughout the seasons of this podcast who are far smarter than I am, who have far more degrees and letters after their name than I will ever have. Um, And so uh, I 
have loved, loved, loved just getting to sit down with scholars and, and people who are doing on the ground ministry and talking through these different questions. Uh, some of the key questions that I've run into specifically recently, uh, and I think the impetus of this may have been COVID-related conversations. We have a four-year-old and a five-year-old. We have we actually have two children who are just four months apart. We adopted uh, while pregnant. And a lot of people say like, was that on purpose? And it, it absolutely was. We actually were pregnant before moving toward adoption through the foster system. Uh, but those two keep us on our toes. And so uh, one of which um, I am just convinced that the Lord has unbelievable plans for uh, because he stumps me often um, as we, you know, drive by. And, and so much of theological conversation is really just everyday life moments where it's like, hey, what what is that? What's happening here? And so we're in a season of talking a lot about death in our home, which is kind of a weird thing to talk about with such young children. But we uh, we lost a grandparent about a year ago and had a lot of conversations around that. And then, you know, as you just drive around, we pass a cemetery between their school and home each day. And so they have a lot of questions about that. And, and then, of course, this sweet child of mine also asked about, well, when Jesus comes back, all those people are going to be raising from the dead. I'm like, well, that is true and a little terrifying, and I'm really glad you're excited about it. But um, And so we've talked a lot about just why does God let people die and what does it mean to live forever if our bodies will die, which has led to some really fruitful conversations. Uh, some of the ones that have come from families in our church that I felt like were really helpful for kids uh, specifically was like, does God have a body? And that was a question I had not considered because as we talk about God, you know, we can really clearly make the distinction between the persons and, and that Jesus obviously has a body because he uh, was a man. And yet uh, this was a really important question for uh, a friend of mine's son who was like, well, how am I going to know if I see God if he doesn't have a body? How, how do I know if he hears my prayers if he doesn't have a body that has ears? Um, and so I have loved, I, for me, uh, I have always loved ministry to children. I think that they're just little sponges and soaking it up and uh, wanting to know the deeper things of God. I think we often assume that children can't understand uh, when obviously scripture says like, be like little children who can believe without seeing, who can trust, uh, who can easily say, sure, the Trinity, like, of course, God is three and also one. I can trust that instead of us adults who are like, but how does that really work? Um, and so it has been just so fulfilling and, and such an honor to get to walk alongside parents as they seek to disciple their kids in their home and as they really uh, lean into being that primary discipler for their kids. Mary, that is so good. And like the theme of this interview, it seems like, and of your ministry right now, seems to be taking the Bible and taking like truths about God and making them accessible, whether we're talking about to kids uh, or to adults, you're you're talking about helping people love God with their with their minds and understand uh, who the God that created everything and that we serve is. And so I think that is just really, really incredible. I was um, really struck when I heard about your podcast because I've always like thought there was such a need uh, for that, for somebody to be able to take Take these concepts because kids ask all kinds of questions. And like you said, a lot of times questions that as adults, we just, we make all these assumptions or we're able to make connections that they just, their, their minds can't yet. And so the fact that you're doing this, I think is a real service to parents and I hope more people uh, will check it out. But we just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We're incredibly excited about your book and we're also excited about the podcast and we hope people will check both of them out. Thank and you Merry so much, Christmas guys. to you, Mary. Merry Christmas to you guys. I hope yes. you have a great holiday season. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, I'm going to pretend like this is a party that you threw and we're all coming. So you get to go first. Tell us what's on your mind. I arrived fashionably late, Wait, of when? course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, oh, thank you for making all of my dreams come true. Everyone came to my party. So as you mentioned in your article, Josh, the seven good things in a bad year or something like that, I can't remember the title, <laughs> that at the very beginning you mentioned book awards and book lists, and I love those as well. And so 
The Gospel Coalition has put out some of their editors' favorite books from the year, books that they enjoyed. So that has a good lineup. Uh, Christianity Today, I can't remember if you put this in your article or not, but they had their book awards that they um, released, which is a great list. And there were a ton more on Twitter of uh, book lists that I failed to save. I Although I am going to need somebody to do like a book list for not for dummies, but for those who would like to escape reality, because some of these books, I mean, I like a good academic book every once in a while, but I need some good fiction recommendations. I need some good, uh, I don't know, not cookbook recommendations, but, you know, just some good, fun books. And uh, these lists always fail to include those. So if you have some, send them my way. I'm not talking to you, Josh and Brent, because we know from last week you do not have good, fun books to recommend. Yeah, I'm really sorry to let you down. Or as the kids say, sorry, not sorry. They say hashtag sorry, not sorry. Honestly, I wouldn't know. Um, but speaking of speaking of fun things and escaping reality. So I was I have really, really been limiting my time on social media for almost a month now, and it has been really good for my soul. Uh, but in the few minutes that I was allowing myself yesterday to to mindlessly scroll on the internet, I came across this video that I'm just calling like the uh, snow snowpocalypse video. But basically, it is I don't even know where this happened, but it is a frozen town, presumably in the United States, where like in the middle of the city there are uh, everything is frozen. There's so much snow on the ground. I'm assuming it's snow and ice. And so clearly, this person is filming. Uh, from an upper story looking down on this intersection and then you see this car and it can't stop and so uh, but it but it's all happening in slow motion so this car can't stop and then finally it stops but then I'll know there's a city bus coming behind the car and it just kind of is it going to stop is it going to yes and then it hits the car and then there's a guy driving a truck that has a ladder on the top of his truck and he comes and he can't stop so then he hits the back of the bus but then there's another city bus and so this guy and his poor ladder which you know extends past the front and back of his truck just gets wedged between these two city buses. There's a police officer that comes to try to, you know, help out and can't stop. And he slides down the hill and hits something and then on and on and on. It's like a two minute video with, with music in the background. Uh, there's, there's nothing inappropriate, but you could just watch it and just, you know, just laugh because it is, you know, other than the cars being damaged, nobody gets hurt. It's just, it's just one of those things. And it is, uh, it's kind of haunting and kind of, I don't even know, therapeutic. It's kind of perfect time. for 2020. It's just kind of perfect for 2020. And so as we are counting down the days until we uh, until we escape this year, you can just you can just watch this and enjoy it. You know, I lived in Michigan for two years, and that's after being raised in Florida. So, you know, I knew just enough to be dangerous about driving in the snow and ice. And it's actually one of my favorite things because, again, I don't understand the implications of what all can happen. And I lived in I lived in small town Michigan. So it's not like I had to get on the highway. I was in a whiteout one time and that was not fun on the highway. But through the little back back roads and things, it's kind of fun if you just if you know how to handle the car. I mean, sometimes you can't help it, but uh when we had that big snow, no, the ice storm here in Tennessee, I was one of the crazy ones out on the road after a while because there were no other cars and it was just it was just fun to be kind of cruising cruising through the ice. <laughs> yeah, gr Sounds growing up we, weird. We, we did that on four-wheelers. We tried not to do it on in our actual vehicles. <laughs> yeah. Well, nobody was hurt in the process. I was safe. I never spun out. You, you just, were also single and, and not the mother of two children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my husband probably would let me do it now, but slow and steady wins the race really is is what it comes down to and do not slam on your brakes. Well, guys, For the love, uh, do not slam maybe, on your brakes. Maybe Lindsay will get like a GoPro or a dashboard cam or something and film herself should we get a great snow here in Tennessee. But for now, Brent, um, your lunchroom is one of my Christmas presents. I'm immensely jealous. Tell us about it. So uh, with with our this is appropriate because of our conversation uh, around the Electoral College and the transition and just everything that goes uh, into the uh, the changing of the guard in the office of the President of the United States. So uh, I picked up this book. There's been a lot of people talking about it, uh, particularly in the Acela corridor between uh, Washington, D.C. And, and New York. And honestly, I got to tell you, I'm about three quarters of the way through, and rightfully so. It is a biography of James 
Baker. Now, that name may not necessarily just like leap to the front of uh, folks' mind, but it should. Uh, so the book is titled The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. It is written by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. I mean, they are a powerhouse reporting couple. They're, they're married. Um, and Jim Baker, I, what's funny is I was hoping like last year as I was just thinking through some of the people that have shaped uh, the country over the years, I even said to myself, um, I would love to read a biography of James Baker. And lo and behold, 2020 produced it. And I'm so thankful for it uh, because this man is the, the former White House chief of staff. Uh, he was a former secretary of treasury, former secretary of the state. I, I mean, this guy has just done it all. What an amazing life. And I honestly, I cannot, uh, I cannot recommend this highly enough uh, for our audience. If anything that you've seen from the election, from the transition, just thinking through, you know, how does a White House run? How does a White House prepare uh, to hand over power and take power? Uh, this is the book for you. Uh, it's a great read. It, it's not difficult. You're going to be given insight into so many backroom discussions uh, in the halls of power in Washington. I mean, it is, it's just a thoroughly entertaining read. And honestly, James Baker, he has led a remarkable life. And uh, I'm just so glad that these two reporters uh, decided to document it for us. Well, I'll just jump in and say, I cannot wait uh, to get my hands on this book and to to read it. It is one of those, it's one of the books that is at the very top of my Christmas list and one I anticipate reading over the holidays with just immense joy. So thanks for that preview. Well, thanks so much for listening to today's show. Uh, we had a lot of fun recording it and we wanted to let you know that uh, next week we are incredibly excited because we are doing something different uh, with the ERLC podcast. We are recording basically uh, what we are calling a supercast or a megacast where we are taking all of our ERLC podcast hosts and we're getting together to do some, just, just a Christmas episode. And it's not necessarily geared around Christmas, but it's just us talking to one another. Uh, so our friends uh, on the Capital Conversations podcast, which are our colleagues in D.C., our colleague Jason Thacker, who does the Weekly Tech Podcast, is focused on all things technology. Uh, we're going to be together and having a conversation that we're excited to share with you. So look for that next week in your feeds. Uh, but for today, uh, thanks so much for listening. You can find links to all the things we talked about in the show notes. And for Brent and Lindsay and the whole gang, we want to say thanks so much for listening. And we will be back next week with the Megacast. Mm -hmm.